Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we are joined by the usually incandescently filled with rage, Tim Miller. But I'm, I got to tell you, Tim, by the way, good morning, Tim. Good morning, Charlie. Congratulations. A granddaughter and a vaccine. Things are looking up in Wisconsin. I, I am feeling mellow today about all of this. I, I have to tell you, uh, for people who didn't see my newsletter or follow me on Twitter, uh, early this morning, about seven o'clock, uh, Emilia K. Sykes was born, big girl, my new granddaughter, which makes number four, by the way. Makes wow. number four. I have to say, for some reason, this one excited me, maybe because I knew it was coming today, or maybe I'm just at the age where it just seems sort of a little bit more meaningful. Pandemic but, uh, loneliness, maybe. It could be that. And and also, you know, it's that it's that feeling, you know, you, you mentioned I'm going to be getting the, the vaccine on Monday. I should, by the way, just mention this to, to Jim Swift. If um, if I have the side effects to it, uh, you might have to fill in on the podcast on Tuesday. You know what I'm saying? It's not a bad thing. No, Dad. No. no. So I'm just I just want to just want to mention that that I'm doing that. So it, I guess maybe it does sort of feel like sort of springtime in America again, or something like that, or or or, or springtime here in Mequon, Wisconsin. You know, I mean, it's like we've had this this long dark night. We have new life now, and. Some some prospect that we'll be able to crawl out of our caves. Yeah, it was 75 in Oakland yesterday. JVL was talking about how we should all be optimistic that normal is coming. Uh, you know, we can be not rage-filled for a day. New life. I'm with you. Well, and even here in Wisconsin, I mean, we, we have we have like, you know, two feet of snow on the ground, but it was in the 50s this week. So oh, it's nice. that 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 also feels like kind of a, a, a big deal around here. OK, so we have a lot of things to talk about today. Some breaking news. Uh, the Manhattan DA has has his hands now on Donald Trump's tax returns. What could go right there? Right. I mean, that's been something we've been waiting for for a very long time. And I think it's important to note that it's not just the tax returns. It's like the whole file cabinet. I mean, all of those financial records. So that's something to keep in mind every time we talk about, you know, what's going to happen in 2024. Well, let's find out the Manhattan DA. You have any thoughts about the... I mean, the, look, I, I guess I just say this. I, I I was never a fan of chasing after every, oh, this is going to be the thing that fells yeah. Trump. I mean, well, we did fell him. We beat him uh, last year, which is nice to remember from time to time. Um, but, you know, I, I once sent a tweet in the middle, like, you know, when I was trying to convince some of these soft Trumpers, um, you know, many years ago, that was that was like, do any of you honestly believe if the Manhattan TA and that's DNY got to look at every financial transaction Donald Trump ever made that that, that would come out clean I mean does any like do even people that support Donald Trump think that uh, because I don't I don't think so I, I think everybody understands that during his uh, time in business he was at minimum cutting corners yeah, uh, at minimum avoiding taxes at minimum you know doing sketchy sort of things that that, that benefited him uh, so you know will any of that uh hopefully uh that will lead to pain for donald trump i was uh, one other thing that buoyed me besides your granddaughter was the lead <laughs> sentence of christian vanderbook's article in the bulwark yesterday about the series of humiliating losses that trumpers have sustained and i and that is nice to remember, uh, and and hopefully this will be another one of those. But you know, I mean, what what exactly is it? Is there something in there that would prevent him from running in twenty twenty four? Could could you even find a jury anywhere in America that would convict Donald Trump that wouldn't have a single MAGA person on it? I, it's like all of that. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about, but but I, I do think it's going to create 
uh, at minimum some serious annoyances for him. And I, and I think that, you know, the argument over time, all of us continue to look writer and writer and writer, Charlie. And I think yes. that it will continue to buoy that argument is, as you know, we see, you know, more tangible evidence that, you know, this was a person that, that avoided taxes and broke the law and, you know, um, well, in the, in the, the law and order party, law and order for Mexicans, but not for me. Well, there's a reason why Donald Trump really did not want these financial records to get into the hands of DAs. He really, really yeah. didn't want it because for years and years and years, this guy was, as you pointed, you know, cutting corners. He was inflating the value of things. He was he was committing what, if it was done by any other human being on Earth, would be known as just flat out fraud, insurance fraud, tax fraud, uh, all kinds of other things. And generally, when you catch somebody. Um, you know, signing their name to a, a a financial document with knowingly false information, that's going to be a problem, right? If you and I did that, we would end up in a whole world of hurt. And so, yes, there's going to be something that they're going to find there. Now, is it going to be kind of like the what's the, 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 the cliche about Al Capone, you know, finally going down for tax evasion and he murders all these people to get him on tax evasion? Uh, you know, it, it may not be the sexiest thing in the world, but there are things that are technically known in the legal profession as the headshot, where if I find you doing this, you're just done. And I'm guessing there's a bunch of those in there. OK, so the MBS report coming out from the Biden administration, that this is the Jamal Khashoggi uh, report that will tie MBS to the murder of this American journalist. And this will be somewhat awkward for certain folks, won't it? Uh, yeah, Jared Kushner in particular. I mean, you know, there were some reports. I, uh, you know, Stephanie Rule at MSNBC was reporting that Kushner was was having relatively serious conversations about lucrative business partnerships deals with MBS um, after the end of the White House. So, I mean, maybe he just doesn't give an f about uh, a journalist that writes for an American paper getting chopped to bits by by someone, and you know it's just all about the greenbacks for for Jared. I don't know, but I think that's going to make things very awkward. It's going to reinforce the fact that Donald Trump um, covered up, uh, you know, an ally's absolutely grotesque and horrifying uh, murder um, of of a journalist over there. Um, you know, just free freedom of speech over over their reporting, over their speaking out about about the regime. Um, so I think that's going to make him awkward. And, and you know, I, I'm hoping that this is a good sign for 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 the Biden that the Biden administration is going to continue to be clear eyed on this sort of stuff. And they they did the right things on Navalny. They're doing the right things on this. Uh, I've been helping my friend. Um, Mohammed Sultan, if you haven't seen this, he, he just has this amazing story where he was imprisoned in, in Egypt and has been fighting and, you know, did, went on hunger strike and was finally released, uh, you know, a few years ago. And, and now he started this group that is advocating for political prisoners in Saudi and Egypt. Mm. And, and, and like, you know, this is, I think, good, you know, news for, for them, right? That, that these, that, that MBS and CC and, um, you know, in Turkey, like they're, they're going to have to, you know, play ball on human rights to get for the Biden administration to play ball with them. Uh, hopefully this is a signal, uh, you know, of that, that um, you know, that sort of relationship is going to be restored, you know, rather than, you know, this transactional relationship where, you know, if MBS buys some of my weapons, he can kill whoever the fuck he wants and Donald Trump will cover it up. 
which which is a which is literally apparently what the policy was. Okay, so I, I, we have a lot of things to get to today. Can I just mention that I in my newsletter today I dropped from a great height on uh, on Andrew Cuomo. And the, I the, did in today's Not My Party over on Snapchat. You? If you have, if people didn't know, Not My Party is back on Snapchat. We've oh, also posted up on YouTube. So okay, we so very I, aligned today on Andrew Cuomo. Okay, I, I I just think that you know before people say, well, this is what aboutism, you know, well, you can't you you can't go ahead. No, look, um, this is one of the lessons we've learned that everybody who is not Trump or the anti-Trump does not necessarily make them a good person. I call it the Michael Avenatti syndrome. You and I both remember Michael yeah. Avenatti when he was the hottest thing of hotness ever, and it turns out the guy's a complete con man, crook, liar, etc. Et and it was that should have been a cautionary tale. We should have realized, you know, maybe maybe we shouldn't rush to embrace people like Avenatti and Amarosa and Michael Wolf and all of those folks. But the Andrew Cuomo story, I, you know, this guy and I, 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 I walk through the way that he was lionized, celebrated and gushed over last year by the media. And now it's all falling apart. This accusation of sexual harassment. I mean, the guy is a creepy, he's a bully, he's a thug, uh, as well as somebody who covered up. Uh, covered up the death of thousands of nursing home residents. I mean, it is really appalling. And I mean, it's not just that he was incompetent um, and boorish, but I, I, I think it's criminal, the fact that he actually withheld important data that could have saved people's lives in the midst of a pandemic. So this is not just a blunder. And so you look back and you go, shouldn't we have seen this coming? I mean, I know, I know that we're all thinking. I mean, okay, didn't you, you know, see Trump, this coming, Charlie? Well, didn't you write about Charlie about I, Andrew many months ago? Well, I, I don't think I did. I, I, mean, I, I, I may have said it. I mean, I I wrote about Avenatti and like we need to learn the lesson from this. Just because somebody is quote unquote on our side, we shouldn't assume that they are. You know, that they're on the up and up. And by the way, there's a lot of categories of that. But I, this is this is one of those moments where you, you go back and you go, okay, Trump was horrible and and awful and everything and it was almost like nobody wanted to also say and you know this guy andrew cuomo you know maybe we shouldn't be writing articles about you know his nipples maybe we shouldn't <laughs> be talking about you know cuomo sexuality maybe we shouldn't you know be calling him america's governor because this is this is a this is a sketchy character but we got we got sucked into it you know there's something about hearing you say the word nipples charlie that's really got me got me oh. twisted up this morning um okay uh, there, uh, this 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 is a real headline in the new york post i am not freaking making this up okay well let me get this here new york post actually ran a story with the headline andrew cuomo's nipples take our minds off coronavirus <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, the, I mean, New, New York Daily News headline: Heartbroken Cuomosexuals Lament Loss of Daily Coronavirus Briefings. Guy wrote a freaking book about himself. Okay, in the middle, he got of an all Emmy. That. He got an Emmy. While old people are dying in nursing homes, and he's lying about it. Yeah, I, I don't. Maybe you didn't write about it, Charlie, but you definitely mentioned. It. I, I look, okay. I, and we did, and I, I remember getting pushback. You know, when I would do MSNBC and, and criticize yeah. him last last year. Um, from people who didn't like to hear it um, for, I, I get it. I, I understand the reason, but it's been pretty obvious for a while. And um, you know, I, I think that uh, you can see it, you, you don't want on the left to fall into the trap of, of what we're seeing with this, you know, Trump 
uh, you know, God King um, uh, worship on on the right, right? We're like, you can't ever do anything wrong, right? I mean, because right. It, because you, you you get into this you get into this problem where you're calling you know Andrew Cuomo, you know, you're saying you're a Cuomo sexual, and he's writing a book about how great he did, while while the pandemic is still going on and people are still people are still dying, and his state has the has the highest deaths per capita. So, yes, New York was hit the worst. Yes, he was dealt with a bad hand, but I remember firsthand. I'm here in Oakland. Us in Seattle were the first cities to lock down. I, I remember this. And New York, Cuomo, and de Blasio were still arguing about it. For, yeah. And it went on for like a week or two. Um, that they that they didn't lock down right at the height of it, right when right when it needed to be cold, when we were talking about flattening the curve. So in addition to the nursing home things, there were other decisions like that at the front. And it's not as if there weren't other people. You know, in, in Not My Party today, I talked about Jay Inslee. Washington was actually the first state to, to um, you know, we think that, that the coronavirus came in from, from China and it was in Seattle. Um, they have four times less death per capita in Washington than in New York. Now, not all of that is based on what the governors have done, but some of it is. Like Washington looks a lot more like what happened in Canada, where they didn't have the mask wars and all this stuff, than, than in New York. And, and four times fewer deaths in New York is a, is a lot of people, you know, uh, if, if they had looked more like Washington. So um, I, I think it's, it's a, I'm happy to see that, you know, the mainstream media and, and really the, the, more liberal media have have been have been hammering Cuomo this week, uh, and and it's overdue, and it's time, and it shows that there isn't this equivalence, right? That there aren't you don't see any Democratic politicians going, "This is still Andrew Cuomo's party," like Jim Jordan with Donald Trump, but but it's it's important to guard against this sort of stuff because he's, I mean, uh, you know, he's not the person to be putting on a pedestal. Uh, when it comes well, to this stuff, and, and, and just and, because and, he's in New York City and his brothers on in, on on CNN and they're they're funny, oh, that's bad though. No, see, I mean that that whole thing now looks really creepy in 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 retrospect, doesn't yeah. it? You know the the back and forth. Uh, you know, I found a story in People magazine gushing about the bickering and you know the the brothers. Not not so good. Look, I, I guess one of the great principles in life is don't defend the indefensible. Don't don't get yourself into that mode. Because I will tell you that that is a chronic disease on the right, where you cannot criticize. I mean, that, that, look, that's, that's how you get a cult of personality. You can't criticize anybody on the right. You have to come up with some whataboutism. And so you find yourself coming up with bizarre rationalizations for the worst people in the world. And trust me, that, that is, that's not the way you want to live. Right? It, it, it burns your brain out. So can I say something nice about somebody, though? Please. So Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney is not going wobbly. This is an interesting story to me because, number one, um, you've seen all these other Republicans who sort of, you know, dip their toe in criticism. And then as soon as they see what the blowback is going to be, they 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 run away. So you had um, you had Liz Cheney at that press conference yesterday with uh, with Kevin McCarthy. And they're asked about Trump being at CPAC. And Kevin McCarthy does his usual blah, 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 blah. And she steps up and says, hey, I just don't think that Donald Trump should have any role in the Republican Party. I mean, she's standing right there with all these other hacks like you know, McCarthy and Scalise. And she just says it. This woman is not going wobbly. And then I don't know whether you heard the audio of this. She's doing an event for the Reagan. Is it the Reagan Library, the Reagan Institute? Well, she's talking about all of this, and she 
I mean, to say that she doesn't mince words is is underplaying it a little bit because she says, well, anyway, this is this is this has got the the folks at the Federalist. I mean, you know, undies way in a serious bundle about this. This is Liz Cheney at the Reagan event. It's very important for us to ignore the temptation to look away. Um, and and it's very important, especially for us as Republicans um, to make clear that, um, we, we aren't the party of, um, of white supremacy. You certainly saw, um, uh, anti-Semitism. You saw the symbols of, uh, Holocaust denial, for example, uh, at the Capitol that day, you saw a Confederate flag being carried through the rotunda. Um, and I think we as Republicans in particular have a duty and an obligation, um, to stand against that, to stand against insurrection. The president and many around him pushed this idea that the election had been stolen. And, and that is a dangerous claim. Uh, it wasn't true. Uh, there were, you know, over uh, 60 court cases where uh, judges, including judges appointed by President Trump and other Republican presidents, looked at the evidence uh, in many cases uh, and, and said there is not widespread fraud uh, and wouldn't grant the relief that the uh, Trump campaign was seeking. So the idea that we in Congress were going to step in and somehow overturn the results of the election on January 6th was never true, was unconstitutional, was wrong. So let me just say. I'm doing a slow clap in my child's playroom right now. Yeah, it's well, also, and this is what was kind of gave me do the, the double take to hear her very explicitly calling out white supremacy and anti-Semitism. And I don't know whether you saw this uh, blue box Dave over the Federalist saying, she is she really saying the Republican Party is the party of white supremacy? She better defend that. No, that's not what she's saying. She's saying that the Republican Party needs to confront this because it's a reality. And the fact that she was willing to say the words, I think, is an indication that she's not she's not only not backing off. I mean, she's leaning into this thing. Well, I can see why the Federalists would be, uh, you know, would feel targeted when somebody mentions the fact that white supremacists are being led inside the House and the Republican Party and the conservative movement. I guess they were probably correct about the fact that they were being, uh, you know, subtweeted there maybe by Liz Cheney. Um, uh, You know, here is the thing that is so refreshing about that and frustrating at the same time is that everything she's saying is just true. You know, she isn't really even editorializing that much in that statement, right? It's just like she's just laying out a series of fact after fact after fact. And it's like nobody else is saying it, you know, in the, 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 that has an R by their name, right? Except Kinzinger, you know? And so so just to hear a dispassionate breakdown of the fact that the Republican Party has a problem with white supremacy. The election wasn't stolen. We couldn't have done anything on January 6th. What Donald Trump did was dangerous. Donald Trump stirred this. I mean, those are all just simple facts, you know, that she's saying in a very kind of, you know, Cheney-esque fashion, right? Uh, and this was not... It's different than Kinzinger, right? Because he's kind of out there like tomahawk dunking on MTG and all this stuff. And, and God bless him. But this is not that. She's 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 actually trying to speak to 
traditional Republicans who should know better and don't and are all going along with this absolute nonsense. So uh, good on her. She t- t- I-, I thought she looked a little nervous in that video yesterday mm-hmm. where she was saying, um, you know, that Donald Trump shouldn't be part of the party mm-hmm. uh, next to Kevin McCarthy and Scalise, which, again, good on her because that is it's a tough situation to do that. But again, she's right. That's the lot. This is the thing that's been frustrating all of us for so long over the last four years is that people on the right will criticize Trump, but then not take the logical next step. You know, which is like, if you believe that he tried to steal an election that wasn't stolen, then of course he shouldn't have a role in the party or the country going forward, right? But but these other folks won't won't go there. You know, that your Rob Portmans and your John Thunes because they know what the blowback's going to be. So good on her, and I really enjoyed, really enjoyed watching Steve Scalise like mm-hmm. shake his head while she was talking, like trying to tut tut her <laughs> when trying to, you know, uh, when, when she is just like laying him bare uh, there in front of everybody. So yeah, good honor. You know, going back to the Federalist for a moment, because you know, actually when you talked about how, you know, it, what she's saying is just incontrovertibly true. And, and, and that's what makes it so radical right now. Because we just are in this ocean of bad faith arguments, twisted arguments, not just conspiracy fantasies, but just these sort of b- bizarre, you know, what aboutism plays. Um, this this piece in the Federalist, uh, Ben Dominic's publication. Uh, well, the Federalist, I think, is just it, you 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 come for you come for the, the the bad faith and you stay for the bad writing or or whatever it's around, but. Um, Dave Marcus writes, Liz Cheney has defamed tens of millions of Republicans as white supremacists. I want to see her evidence. Okay, bullshit. That's not what she's saying. You know, this whole thing, like if you criticize anyone in the party, if you criticize Marjorie Taylor Greene, if you point out that Donald Trump is lying about the election, you are defaming 75 million. That bullshit victim card is just it's the laziest bad faith argument out there. What she is saying is exactly what William F. Buckley said, Ronald Reagan said, other people say there's no place in this party for bigots. We have a problem. We need to be concerned about the 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 ideological hygiene of our our party. Um, We are not. We need to make it clear that we are not these people. And so but the folks, the Federalists are like, well, you can't even bring this up because we, we can't denounce white supremacy because otherwise that's denouncing everybody. I- yeah, well, you bring the, you can't bring this up because they know they're guilty. I mean, this is the thing, Charlie. Like, I, Liz wasn't defaming them, but I will. Like, I'll defame the Federalist. I'll defame the people who 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 know better and are part of this. And, and I think that most people at the Federalist do know better. You remember Ben Dominich, who, who runs the Federalist, wrote – I think, and I know this is going to knock your socks off to hear this, one of the most prescient and clear-eyed articles about the Trump era back in 2015, mm-hmm. where, where he said that, that our party is on the precipice of we, where we have to decide whether we're going to become a white identity nationalist party in the vein of Europe or a party that cares about freedom. And, and in that article, he, he cited on the side of we need to be on the, part, the side of freedom. Well, what happened is Donald Trump made the party 
a party of white nationalism, white identity politics, and and the Federalists said, okay, we're on board. Yeah. So yeah. so Ben saw the choice, and he saw the choice clearly. He's not a these these are not people who are like voters in you know out in the country who, who don't follow all this closely and and you know are culturally conservative or whatever, pro life, and they they're going to stick with the party. All that those voters, I you know you can't judge every seventy four point two million people, but the people at the Federalist saw the choice and they picked door. Uh, white and they picked the white identity politics door. So I mean, that's just that that is just the reality. I and mean, Donald Trump was tweeting white power videos during the campaign and not apologizing for it. He put a guy that that um, that was involved in in kind of white nationalist uh, you know com- elite culture and Stephen Miller in charge of the country's entire uh, immigration regime. I mean, he was literally a friend and ally of Richard Spencer, uh, you know, who ran the modern day KKK. So, I, you know, we, we don't need to split hairs here about what Donald Trump was was doing and, and what kinds of people were at the insurrection. I mean, they had damn Confederate flags and, and you know, Holocaust denial shirts on. This is such a great point. I'm tempted to say you're just not another pretty face there, Tim Miller. But oh, thank you. Thank guys you like, but guys like Ben Dominic and um, is it Dominic or Dominic or I don't know, whatever, or just Mr. Megan McCain. I don't know. What do we call him? I just uh, the uh, guys like him and Tucker Carlson need to be distinguished from just your other knuckle dragging, you know, mouth breathing types because they know the choice they're making. They knew better. They looked at this and they saw it very, very clearly. Here are two paths for the party. And when the party went down the path of white identity politics, they kind of uh, shrugged their shoulders and said, OK, we're we're in, too. Or, or in the case of uh, of, of, of Ben, um, got off the phone with whoever it is who's funding the Federalists and decided to go along with it. But yes, they know it. They made the, they made the choice with the full understanding of the moral weight of what they were doing. That's yeah, now the they're thing. saying if we you, can't criticize them for it because they don't want to they don't want to own up to their choice. Could, uh, OK, so Marjorie Taylor Greene. By the way, did you did you did you see what, what Bill Crystal's in a new phase of his career? Have you noticed this? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I'm Bill Bill Bill's all out of fucks to give. I mean seriously. So he, he tweeted out this morning. I hear Matt Schlapp is trying to replace Young Pharaoh at CPAC. He's the guy that the any semite that they uh, uh, that that they that they canceled in a in an event called America Uncanceled. Anyway, I hear Matt Schlapp's trying to replace Young Pharaoh at CPAC with Marjorie Taylor Greene's polyamorous tantric sex guru. Oh. You know, I'm old enough to remember when Bill Crystal probably would not be tweeting about a polyamorous tantric sex guru, but but I am I am very much here for it. Um I'm here for it too, and I'm going to get to Bill in a second. But um, I, I, I want to spend a little time on Young Pharaoh and MTG. Did did you? I, I'm I, I'm sorry to admit that I mm-hmm. have not yet listened to yesterday's podcast. So have you listened to and played Young Pharaoh ripping on Matt Schlapp? No, I I have listened. We didn't play it on the it podcast. Is, it but is really good if the listeners so haven't listened to it because he's like it's this. Gold. I said the Golden. same exact stuff that this guy did. Like he's out there googling Match Slap and all the Match Slap's crazy racist comments, and he's like, "Why?" And he's like, "I'm just they're canceling the black guy." Like Match Slap gets to run this thing, and he's just saying the same stuff that me. I mean, it was. It was some real talk from Young Pharaoh, which which was really um, enjoyable, and I'd recommend people read. But um, as far as MTG and her tantric polyamorous tantric sex lover, which I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, 
good honor. No judgment here. I've got a lot of other problems with MTG. Um, what she was doing yesterday um, with the trans, um, you know, attacking Murray Newman. Okay, uh, tell so, tell tell the story because this this yeah. may be a little bit inside baseball. What she actually did yesterday? Yeah, sure. So so Marie Newman, I, th- I, I think I think I'm pronouncing that right, is a congresswoman out of Illinois, um, and uh, she is a trans child. And so she posted yesterday on on Twitter that she was putting the, a trans flag outside her office, which was across the hallway from Marjorie Taylor Greene's office, um, as a, as a protest to the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene was not supporting the Equality mm-hmm. Act. Yeah, um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene then uh, creates a literal poster, um, which she puts outside her office that says trust the science in quotations, but it doesn't say who she's quoting with that. So maybe it's sort of like a Royal quotation. Um, trust the science. Um, there are only two genders. Um, I think I have that right. Something to that effect. Some, some, something to poke Marie Newman in the eye over, over trans rights. So I, I just, for starters, like this, all of this is so childish and, and it's just so offensive, you know, that like, this is what she's to be known for. But I, I did, I did think that, you know, there's this joke that goes around online about how these new Congress folks like aren't actually legislators. They're just posters. Like, yeah, they just think right. their job is to post things on the Internet. And like, that's all she's there for. And and, and I did appreciate that. Like she made that literal like, like this is Marjorie Taylor Greene literally believes. I think her job is to post on Twitter and to make posters that own the libs. And she's owning her neighbor in the hallway and and trying to make it a hostile workplace and insult her trans daughter. I, it's just like this stuff is so there. It, it is so well, she's got a lot of time. She's got a lot of time substance. on her hands now. Right. Yeah, she just have to go to any true. committee hearings. So. That's true. And maybe she, that was the argument for ke- keeping her on the committees. Because she's yeah. like, what else do I have to do? I'm going to make this poster that that um, is bigoted against trans people and that attacks the Democrats that are in the hallway. Jeez. I mean, what the hell else is she going to do? I mean, it really, we're, 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 we're a long way, a long way from the halcyon days of our, of our deliberative body, Charlie. Well, it's going to be 24 seven shit posting for her. Um, yeah. you know, and, we actually talked about this on yesterday's podcast with Karen Tumulty, the number of United States senators who also seem to think that their job is not about legislating or sitting in committees and, you know, compromising legislation or solving problems. Uh, it is just shit posting. OK, so just this, here's a quick digression, because when I when I go out and I walk my dogs up and down the driveway, because that's my, you know, we'll just go for a walk here. I, I listen. I was listening to um, Sirius XM and they were playing an excerpt from this, uh, you know, Joe Biden coming out of a meeting on uh, on uh, the supply chain, protecting the supply chain, which is really nerdy and wonky stuff, guaranteeing that we don't uh, have a breakdown in the supply chain. And I have to say that I actually stopped at one point and thought, this is so amazing. Hearing a president talk about having a meeting, a bipartisan meeting where they were trying to solve an actual problem in the world. How do you make sure that you have enough PPP masks, that you don't have a breakdown in the supply chain for uh, semiconductor chips and things like that? And it did. It, it, it felt like just sort of like being beamed to a different time and different planet. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just, it was like, it's like, like this, is, this is not culture war aspect. There's nothing there. There was no insults. There was no tweets. It's a guy who's talking about how important it is in this country that we have an efficiently running supply chain. 
And the boringness of it and the substance of it was was in some ways just glorious. It was a glorious moment. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'm sure we've we've kind of beat flying Ted to death, though. But like, this is I, I no. do think that this posting, this mindset that Ted doesn't actually think that his job is about you know resolving the supply chain uh, issues or you know figuring out what to do in Texas when it, when people are freezing, and that he might as well just go to Cancun. I, I I do think that that underlied the mindset, right? Because you know once you get into this attitude where you know your job is really just to like dunk on chris murphy on twitter and like that's your you know you, you did your duty for the day and, and and do some fundraising calls um you know then then you your your brain gets warped right and you do start to ignore this kind of stuff like i do think that there are real kind of consequences to their attitudes on that uh that the, there are um speaking of like who we've been dunking on I I have to say that I'm I'm, I'm somewhat delighted to see that the term Ronanon is kind of catching on now for for, for Ron Johnson. Um, I I didn't come up with it, although I've done my part in popularizing it. But I see now that Brian Williams is now using Ronanon to describe Ron Johnson. Uh, well, Br- Brian Y is a Bulwark fan, so it's possible he was listening. We, we I was lavishing for for Bulwark Plus members. I I thought it was you that that, that coined it, so I was lavishing you with praise on the on the Next Level podcast yeah. yesterday. But um, I. It, It is worth reiterating that what Ron Johnson did, and now we're back to the Federalist, by the way, that what Ron Johnson did, and I know you talked about this already on the pod, but like, it was one of the most disgusting and unconscionable things that has happened on the Senate floor, you know, since the time of segregation. I mean, I know that we're, you know, we have this outrage fatigue and, and that so much happened during the Trump administration, but like the idea that the Capitol could be attacked by white nationalists and Confederates trying to overthrow the results of the election, that we would have our first non-peaceful transition of power in the nation's history, and that Ron Johnson would then go on the Senate floor and side with the terrorists and say, actually, no, guys, this is, these were just, these were just good folks that loved the police that were just, they, they, you know, something just happened. It got out of control because, you know, the victims, you know, the cops were wearing too short of skirts and they were, you know, they were asking for it. I I mean, like it it was, it was a, and, and it was a truly just disgusting display to read this article from this hack in the Federalist, um, on, onto the Senate floor. Yeah, it it was, and so he deserves running on, I guess. Is my well, point. I mean, I and and again, it's it's the fact that he's being compared unfavorably to Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley at this point, which is, I gotta say, and I I confessed this yesterday, I I no longer claim to understand what's going on inside his head, you know, except that whoever he's talking to is feeding him the worst uh, stuff. So here, I will here, just say really quick on this: if yeah. you go back to that Mark Becker article that we ran in the Bulwark. Oh, yeah, where, from where, Wisconsin, he, right, right. Yeah, he had the private conversation with Ron Johnson. It went on for like a half hour. Yeah. And the headline of that article is that Ron Johnson knew the election wasn't really stolen. Sure. Um, but but there was an underlying point in the article that I, I thought that there was this direct line to, to his performance on the Senate floor. And that was when he told Mark that the people that go to MAGA rallies really do love this country and that the people that go to Bernie Sanders rallies don't. And and I I, I do think that Ron Johnson believes that. And that that over the course of the last five years, he's come to this conclusion that the that the Donald Trump supporters are, um, you know, being whatever attacked, that they're aggrieved and that they are the true, you know, 
uh, stakeholders, the true, you know, people that are past, that are being passed to the American tradition, you know, down from 1776 to them. And, and that, and that, and that they, you know, should be exalted. And that if you have that mindset and that it's the Bernie Sanders people that are trying to ruin this country and the Trump people that are the ones that really truly love the country, then you can understand why he might then think, well, it couldn't have been them. It had to have been a couple of Antifa provocateurs that made it happen. Um, and so I don't know, you know, Ron long enough to know when that happened in his brain. But I, I, I do think that you could I, I saw a definite connection there. No, I think I actually think that's uh, I think you're right about that. So here's here's an interesting quote that was just posted on uh, on Twitter dot com by uh, Jim Wigderson, who is the who's the editor of Right Wisconsin this right-wing uh, website that was actually founded by me. Um, but Jim James has been doing a great job. He posted this quote from S uh, Senator Margaret Chase Smith. This, this dates back to 1950. The nation sorely needs a Republican victory, but I do not want to see the Republican Party ride to political victory on the four horsemen of calumny, fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. The four horsemen of calumny. Fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. And of course, she's talking about another senator from Wisconsin. She's talking about Senator Joseph McCarthy. So one of the great moments in American political history is when Republican Senator Margaret Chase Smith stands up on the floor of the Senate and says, look, I am a, I'm a Republican. We cannot go there. We cannot be the party of fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. And she was taking on a senator from Wisconsin. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, could you have four and, better and here, words here for the party are. right now? Fear, bigotry, ignorance, and smear. Um, I do have to ask: Is it calumny? Is it calumny? Calumny? How do you how do you say that word? You know what? That's one of those mm. many many words that. Okay, well, this has been kind of my word of the month. I I, I included it in an article. I snuck it in an article yeah. as an inside Twitter joke because the the Nebraska GOP. You know, said that Ben Sass was committing cal calumny, calum, whatever it is, against <laughs> against Donald Trump, and I was like, how did I was like, what a weird word for this for this cent to be just like dumped into the censure of Ben Sass, and so uh, I made a joke that I was gonna I was gonna try to use it, and here it is again, Margaret Chase Smith. I keep seeing it's it's uh, the calumny is is following me everywhere in February of 2021. Well, okay, and here's here's another one. I got a lot of reaction on this one uh, from from the podcast the other day. How do you pronounce the word D O U R? Because of course, you know Donald Trump used that word to describe Mitch McConnell. Obviously, he didn't he didn't Dower. that word. Yeah, you, you pronounce it. I pronounce it Dewar, but I have <laughs> I had many wrong. many. I have had many. You think that's wrong? I had many people who say no, no, it's Dower. So I I believe that there are alternative pronunciations but I, i'm the, i'm willing the wisconsin doer well i have to tell you see this is the irony that i think that on the podcast when i read that and i you know pronounce when i read trump's statement about you know the doer humorless mitch mcconnell i think it was probably the first time that i'd ever pronounced it that way i think i've always pronounced it the other way dower so i have no idea and and you know it's one of those things where I just I just haven't gotten around to like uh, you know what's what's the right answer I don't, I don't know um, I think okay. I'm correct on this one J Jim Swift has slacked me uh, he wrote there was I, I thought I I thought that Margaret Chase quote sounded familiar uh, he Jim Swift himself last June wrote an article about Margaret Chase Smith in that speech so we should you know shout him out and folks who want to learn a little bit more about cal calumny and 
the you know the four horsemen of the GOP can can go read. It's time for another Declaration of Conscience by Jim Swift, the great Jim Swift, Bulwark well, podcast he, producer. He's right about that, and and this is one of those things that drives me crazy about you know, the the lack of interest in how history is going to remember uh, you. Margaret Chase Smith will always be remembered for her courageous stand then, as opposed to. I could read you a list of other Republican senators from 1950, and if you recognize more than three or four names, I'd be surprised. I mean, it's like it's you know, even your United States senator, you're a big fucking deal right now. Guess what? You're going to be totally obscure. You're not even going to make Trivial Pursuit cards. They're just not. They have cards for Trivial Pursuit anymore. Okay, so um, uh, Tim Miller, you you um, you had a topic you want to talk about. I'm, I'm I'll, I'll I'll let you choose in the next topic. Okay, I do want to come to, and, and we'll do more on this for folks. I'm going to do uh, your hosting job because I'm on, you are not on tonight as a new grandfather, but right. I'm on the Thursday night bulwark tonight. So if Thursday not, night bulwark, okay. If you want to just hang out with us for an hour, I'm going to be drinking tonight, you know, so it'll be even more, there'll be even more calumny than there is right now. Um, and uh, so if you want to become a bulwark post member, but my, my topic that I really wanted to hit today was Bill Crystal wrote, uh, for the bulwark about this whole conversation that's that we will continue to have for years to come about kind of wither the never Trump movement. You know, is it worth fighting within the Republican Party? Should we have a third party? Joe Walsh has an article today uh, in the bulwark about about the argument for a third party. Bill's argument um, uh, was essentially, you know, uh, that uh, th- there is an absence of discussion around whether former never Trump Republicans really fit best in kind of this Biden wing of the Democratic Party and that they should work with Biden Democrats. And, um, you know, we could do a whole hour show on this, and I'm sympathetic to Bill's point of view on that. But what I, what I want to talk about is many of our former never Trump friends, you know, at National Review and the Dispatch and elsewhere you know, went at Bill on this. And, and you know, we're like, this is crazy that the Democrats have gone so far to the left. Like, what are we, you know, um, how, how could you how could you do this? Like, you you know, you're blind. And and I, I just need to say a word and, and no Fs to give Bill Crystal's defense on this, um, not just because I'm sympathetic to him, but because Bill Crystal put his money where his mouth was on Donald Trump from day freaking one. And and earlier when I was talking about Liz Cheney and how, you know, she, her actions, you know, were the uh, necessary consequence of her words, right? If you really believe that Donald Trump is this great of a threat, you have to treat treat him as such and act like it. You know, Bill Christ, Crystal tried to recruit someone to run against him at the end of 2016. He, support, he supported impeachment, uh, you know, without reservation. He recruited Joe Walsh and others to try to run against him in a primary. Uh, when that didn't work, he worked with me and others to try to help support moderate Democrats in the Democratic primary so it wasn't Bernie running against him, you know, with, with, with an organization. Mm-hmm. Then in the general election, he gave a clear-eyed view on Joe Biden and the need for Joe Biden to win. Uh, Bill Crystal saw Donald Trump for who he was and, and recognized that he needed to work with people, sometimes Republicans, sometimes Democrats, in order to stop him, stop the menace that tried to steal the election and end our democracy from being president again. And now a bunch of people who say they were never Trump 
say they didn't like Donald Trump, but really couldn't decide whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden was better. I mean, it was such a tough call. I don't know. I just have to write in Edmund Burke or I just have to, I'm just going to write in my dad for president because man, they seem bad. You know, now are saying that it's Bill Crystal that is sacrificing his, his principles. Bullshit. Like I just, I've had enough of that. Like if you could not decide between a just normal, inoffensive Democrat who, you know, I'm sure you disagree with on a couple issues, and Donald Trump, who tried to steal the election and end our democracy, then I, I just, you, your, your judgment is so poor that I, I do not need to hear, you know, your rants from your high horse right now when other, when people who are living in reality try to, try to actually navigate the choices in front of us. So, I, I don't mind folks that land, you know, in good faith in different places on this, but that that really ground my gears. So I, I wanted to to shout Bill out on the podcast on that. Well, one. that's good. I I this is this is a tough decision. I mean, I I really wrestle with all of this because, um, you know, I I, I don't want to go from one tribe to another tribe. I you know I know there are some I people who I'm just a Democrat. No, I'm not. I'm not just a Democrat. I don't even know what the, that means to say these things. I mean, I. I want to be able to like make up my own mind on things. And so, but I, I would see myself, for example, uh, voting for, I'd vote for an Abigail Spanberger, Democratic uh, congressman from, from, uh, from, from Virginia, Connor, Connor Lamb. I have no problem. He's been a guest on, on this podcast. I'd be glad to vote for her. I would definitely vote for Claire McCaskill over Josh Hawley in, in Missouri. <laughs> if she was ever, that was, that, that, that's, 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 that's kind of an easy one. Um, I didn't have a problem, um, voting for, if, if I had the choice, you know, voting for some of these Democrats. On the other hand, I also want to have a hand to make sure that there are people who are going to be voting for the Adam Kinzinger's in the Republican primary or the Liz Cheney's in the Republican Party or any of the other folks that took a principal position because, you know, right now we are still a two party country and it is important to have a rational two rational parties. But. I think Bill's point is at some point, look, if the Republican Party turns itself into this white identity, authoritarian, anti-democratic party, then then a lot rides on the success of the Biden administration. If Biden fails and these people come back into power in, in the form they are right now, that is a very dangerous thing for America. So it's it's an alliance that is difficult for some of us, but I think it's also necessary. And I think that that's the point that he was trying to make. Doesn't mean you give a blank check to them or that you support them on everything, but there are going to be these totally. areas of that's agreement. why it was titled you know? "Work with Biden." It it's wasn't like titled with like "Worship Biden." Like that was that's not right. the title of the article. Yeah. Well, it didn't say "Rubber Stamp Biden." Go along with Biden. I actually think that we're in an interesting moment now. Um, where they believe it or not, this is, this is what's so weird because I mean, obviously we know how divided we are and everything, blah, blah, blah. We we know, we know that, but the, the, the ideological divide between the two parties on issues of substance is actually not that huge. I mean, think about, you know, what is the state of the argument about the minimum wage? Okay. So the, the Democrats want to raise it by $15 an hour. Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton are out there saying no $10 an hour. Okay. Well, that's what a negotiation looks like. Okay, this this is not like black and white. These are this is a negotiation. Child, um, you know, ch- uh, child benefits. Uh, you have Mitt Romney out, you know, proposing the three thousand dollar child benefits. And again, so it's not this, you know, yes versus no on some of these things. So it's kind of this weird moment where there's probably more 
ground where we can work together to solve problems. How do we get out of the coronavirus? How do we keep the economy going? You know, how do we deal with some of these problems like supply chain uh, in, in integrity, et, et cetera? And, and yet we, you know, we're, you know, off talking about the cancel culture and the culture wars and stuff like that. Well, yeah, that's we, where the we, clear we, lines we, are, we, right? We, I mean, we, we, can, we can work with one another on these things. Yeah, I mean, to your point, like, uh, you know, because since the Republicans have given up, you know, being the part, I, there was a great Jonathan Chait article this morning that for like, you know, a century, the Republicans fought to end the New Deal and like they've conceded the fight, right? Totally. On, on some yeah. of these economic points, you know, their differences, but but with their negotiations, it's on these fundamental questions, you know, of do you believe that we should have a democratic republic or not? Yes, right. right. <laughs> should, you know, um, does everybody have the right to vote um, where, where the differences are so stark? And I think that is, you know, again, in support of Bill's argument of saying, well, if only one side is going to be in pro-democracy, isn't there some value in trying to, you know, work within that side to, you know, kind of advance you know, a, um, a, you know, a, a policies that, that you think are better for the country. I, you know, I was making this argument yesterday on the next level. I, I'm a little frustrated by some of what Romney is doing, you know, by, by only preaching to the Republican choir who aren't going to work with the Democrats, right? I mean, if, if, if Romney saw, you know, took Bill's approach, you know, which is work with Biden, you know, wouldn't he be saying, going to the White House and saying, hey, I think that the stimulus would be better if it was 1.6 trillion instead of 600, you know, instead of 1.9 trillion. And we, you know, got rid of these two dumb ideas and replaced it with this one good idea. You know, I, I bet Biden would say, heck yeah. You know, whereas like writing a, a Wall Street Journal op-ed, dunking on him and going on Fox News Radio, uh, you know, I, I don't, I think that is an old mindset you know, where, where, you know, we're in this kind of warfare, um, you know, like the Obama era mindset well, that I led mean, us I, to where we were yeah, at a right. little bit. But, but also there's, there's, there's a, there's a push and pull. I mean, and this, sure. this is the place for fiscal conservatives. Like for example, on, on the debate about the minimum wage, we're no longer stuck on the question of, well, should there be a minimum wage or not? If, if that's accepted, we're going to have a minimum wage. And, and the back and forth is we should raise the minimum wage, but, and I think this would be Romney's point, Let's do it in a way that you know destroys the fewest jobs, because what we're seeing from the CBO is that, yes, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour will raise 900,000 people out of poverty, but it will also kill, destroy more than a million jobs. So is there some way that we can do this? Is there some way of balancing it out so that you make it a living wage, you make sure that work pays, which should be a conservative value, the dignity of work, that people work hard, should be rewarded for it. This is something that I think conservatives should embrace. But you want to do it in such a way that you do as little harm as possible. So that's where this dialogue between the right and the left can, in fact, be constructive. All right. So yeah, let's, I, don't, you know. I don't disagree with that. I guess my point is that it's more of a question of a mindset of how you look at it, which is, are you dealing with Biden to try to get this done, to try to help him succeed? Or is it, you know, I'm going to take this opposite position over here and, you know, we're going to shoot at each other. Right. Like, I, I just think that there, there are kind of two ways to look at it. We'll see how things shake out. Um, and, and I think that that is, you know, it, it's maybe worth the the Romneys and the Toomeys and some of these folks to to kind of have like think about how they can have the most impact and it might require a little bit of a change in in mindset of how to deal with the Democrats than than what was you know the mo during the Obama years.
So I appreciate, I, I appreciate the fact that you brought up the Thursday night live stream. Uh, so pe- for people who are Bulwark Plus members, that is at 8 o'clock Eastern time. Um, and if you remember Bulwark Plus, we send out the link to it. It's a Zoom call. Um, there is alcohol. That is, that is, you have to bring your own. Uh, it's no, it is not supply. <laughs> it's, it's a supply. But uh, what, what is the topic tonight? Do you know? Because I, I'm, we do this on a rotating thing. There are so many of us at the Bulwark. We are just, you know, sort of uh, that, that we... We, we, oh, we you go put in. me on the spot, Charlie. I just usually drink two yeah. beers and just kind of, uh, you know, get ready to bring my takes. I don't, I'm not, I'm not running the show tonight. Uh, JVL is at the helm, so I'm sure, you know, we'll bemoan the state of affairs. Do you think we'll talk about break. CPAC? You think we'll talk think, about oh, CPAC? Well, and then, I, I have to suffer through CPAC today, so I will be talking what? about it. So I'm gonna, well, I'm gonna write about it for the site. Uh, really, so, that's great. Um, so you know, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to keep their eyes on uh, on what's happening down there. How, how do you, how do you do that? I mean, is it is it live stream? I mean, it's uh, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. on the World Wide Web, on the world, the internets. The, you can yeah. you can watch yeah. you can watch CPAC. Amazing the technology yeah. these days. Well, this is one of those things where I, I don't I don't think that you and I would uh, would necessarily be welcome at uh, at CPAC this year. No, no I don't, I don't think, think I'd, I'd get a warm welcome at CPAC this time around. Huh? Tim Miller, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. See you, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.